Welcome back to another episode of ST Talks. I'm Laura Dummer, your host, and today I'm with ST Gen's Chief Operating Officer, Greg Bevere. And he is with us to share about the vision of ST Gen when it comes to the agricultural industry. Before we begin, thank you for being with us today, Greg. Yes, thank you very much, Laura. Now, you have a very unique story. Could you share with us your background in agriculture and what you were doing prior to joining STGen? Sure. I grew up in a Chicago suburb, so most people would see me as a quote-unquote city boy. And <laughs> I, I began my college education in the pre-med program at Northwestern University because I thought I wanted to be an MD. And I quickly realized that the patient contact is something that I, I didn't enjoy very much. But I really did enjoy the medicine and technology aspects of things, so I transferred down to the University of Illinois where I ended up going to college for another 10 years and and, uh, literally changed my life. I'll give you an example. I I did animal science and veterinary medicine when I was at Illinois, and I had the great fortune of being there when Temple Grandin was there. Some of you may know Temple Grandin as the autistic professor at Colorado State who does a lot with animal welfare and is highly recognized as being an expert in that area. They've been, written books and made a movie about her even. And Temple thought differently. And, and um, being a city boy, I really appreciate that because all of the, the, the farm-raised kids had their own paradigm of how to move an animal or how to feed an animal and what to do with an animal. Temple thought about it completely differently. And because I had no baseline of understanding um, I found what she had to say uh, highly innovative. So that's an example of where maybe being a, a city kid going into livestock and ag was an advantage. But uh, after going to college for 12 years, I look back, I've been in this business for 40 years now, and I've had 10 different jobs in 40 years. So that's about changing jobs once every four years, which seems like a lot. I've worked in private companies, public companies, nonprofits. I've worked in animal health, livestock genetics, livestock production, university faculty, plant sciences. So I've had a great career. I've enjoyed everything I've done. And I think the sad part for me is I joined ST, and this is probably my favorite job of all jobs. So I'm glad I finally found it near the end of my career, but I wish I would have found it in the beginning. And in this time, you were part of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is something that we don't hear a lot of. What was your role there, and how did that experience shape how you looked at the agricultural industry? Yeah, so um, I was recruited. People often say, how did you get a job at the Gates Foundation? I was recruited to go there through a search firm. That's how most of the senior-level positions are found. I mean, you can send in an application, but the senior jobs are usually retained search firms that do that. And um, they offered me the position of a, of a senior program officer. And when you're a senior program officer, which, by the way, I think is the most fun job at the foundation, you give away money. And, and, <laughs> and it is it is fun to give away Bill's money, I guess. The only bad side about it is once you give it away, you have to manage it too. So you you make a grant, and then you have to manage the grant. And grant management takes literally ninety percent of your time, whereas making the grant takes ten percent of your time. Mm-hmm. And what you'll find, my areas uh, of giving were the, were in agriculture. We have ag development group, the foundation. 
that gives away almost a billion dollars a year. And most of all of that was for crop. And I was designated as the livestock guy to start livestock giving program. So we gave money for projects in dairy and beef and chickens and small ruminants um, in, in both Africa and India. My target market was people that made less than $2 a day to try to help solve their problems. So the way the ST comes into this, um, it was 2011 when I was on a village in India and the children were crying. And I asked the parents why children were crying. And they said, well, because we had a, a bull calf. And I was like, why would they cry about a bull calf? They said, well, we're, we're so poor. We needed the milk from a female. So the male doesn't do that for us. And, and number two, uh, we're so poor, we're not going to feed the bull calf. We use all of our, our, our livestock feed money for the milking cows and the young heifers. We don't use it for bulls. And third, because we're in India, um, cows are considered sacred and we can't slaughter it. And so I said, what do you do with it then? They said, well, we just let it wander off and sort of scavenge for itself. And because they're considered holy, they get handouts from people. But that diminishes after a while. So if you ever do visit India, Laura, you'll see a lot of starving bull calves that eventually die. And so uh, the that was something the foundation and I personally had an interest in seeing if we could uh, do something to remediate that problem. And I started calling scientists to figure out if there's anybody working with how to, you know, get gender selection in cows. And I heard about sexing technologies and Juan Moreno in Navasota, Texas. So I invited uh, Juan and Maurice out to the foundation at that time and then eventually convinced Juan that he should come to India and look at it. Because when we were first talking about it, I mean, India, although India has 25% of the cows in the world and is a major milk and cheese producer, the, uh, the perception is there's not a lot of way to make good money in India like you can in the more developed markets. But uh, mm -hmm. we figured out a really good business model there. And today we have three sorting labs in India and we have two mobile laboratories in India. And it took us 12 years to do that. So it does take time and effort and persistence, but um, we're ahead of the curve because of that. I should tell you the side story. The people in India did not believe that sex-sorted sperm would work. So the foundation made a grant to ST for about $2 million to send sex-sorted sperm to India. And so we sent it there, and we were starting getting photos of the family with the heifer number one, heifer number two. So they started sending us all the heifer pictures. And finally, they believed that it worked, but then they came back and said, it works great, but we don't like your genetics. We like our own genetics better. <laughs> so we said, fine, we'll use it on your bull studs and, and set up your own genetic program. So that's where we ended up today. That's an incredible story. And it's, it's really um, just quite amazing how that all came together between the Gates Foundation and then your connection with meeting Juan. A great story. Thank you for yeah. sharing that with us. Sure. Now, you have accomplished a lot in your career. I mean, we've kind of gone over this. You've changed jobs approximately every four years yeah. you had, and um, you've been a part of many leading companies and groups. What are you most proud of throughout your career so far? Well, First of all, I'd like to say, when I mean, you mentioned the word career to me, it, it's really a balance between work and personal life because you can't have a career unless it's supported by a personal life, whatever that might mean to whoever's listening to this podcast. And for, me, for me, the personal life has been about having a, 
spouse who's willing to move around the world. I've lived in Spain and in England, and um, also having three great children that have been willing to put up with that, and, and uh, you know, the, the job changes and the moves. And, uh, and now uh, two of those children have had grandchildren, so now I became a grandfather this year for the first time. So that's one thing, is, is having the, the, the support behind the, behind the job, if you will, to, to make it all happen. It's not easy, and it's something that uh, I always think about first. And second, for me, the, the proudest thing of my work career has been really helping others with their own careers. Uh, you know, if you want to call it servant leadership, or if you want to say that I've helped people grow into roles that they never thought they could do. I, I just love connecting with colleagues, especially at this time of my life where I'm in the, in the downside of my career, if you want to think of it that way, where they come back and they thank me and we talk about what they learned. And it's, it's just a very satisfying thing as, as, you, as you grow in your career to, to help others and, and see them progress. It's not about launching a new product or bringing in a cool innovation because the reality is it's all the people that make all that happen. So I, I really mm -hmm. like the, the focus on the people. And for both of those points you just mentioned, um, one thing I admire about STGen as a company is that they put both of those type of topics first. They're very family oriented um, and they understand that, you know, us as team members have families that matter and then um, truly trying to help people achieve um, great heights within their careers and within, within ST genetics. So I think, um, those match up very well to a lot of the core values of ST gen. I think, I think that's true, Lauren. Also, that's the way Juan and Maurice sort of started the organization. And in my discussions with Juan, as this company grows, cause it's a fairly large company today and it's going to get larger. Um, how do we maintain that culture and how do we maintain those norms as we get bigger? Because a lot of big companies, as they grow, don't conform to that. So we really want to try to maintain that for sure. Definitely. Now, today you are STGen's COO. What does this role mean to you, and what is your mission within this position? Yeah, so I took on the role of COO in the year 2017 when Maurice retired. And, you know, because of my academic background, of course, I had to get sort of institutional about it and look up what's a CEO really do, right? And, <laughs> and, and uh, there actually are a lot, it's a, lot of, a lot of good literature on it. And there's, there's seven roles that have been described. And I've, I fall into a couple of those. The reason I'm saying that, it's not just one thing. The overarching role is really to support any requests from the CEO. So if Warren were to walk in here today and say, hey, I'm going to buy this company, can you go look into it or can you help facilitate a group of people to look into it and, you know, tell me the pros and cons of it? Um, another one would be that, that I work in the area of is as a change agent. So uh, during COVID, uh, people were going to work out of their houses more. How do we continue to, to grow our organization during these kind of changes and what do we tell our employees and how do we manage through that. So he would rely on me to help, you know, challenge him on what we should do. Uh, sometimes I don't want to say it's good cop, bad cop, but there can be that in it too. If, if there's something that, that, you know, we're, we're headed down a path and, and I don't agree with it, or he sees me doing something he didn't agree with, we kind of have learned how to 
co uh, work off each other to to uh, to make that happen. So another role people talk about is the heir apparent. I'm not that here, but some people would put a CEO role in to be the next CEO, right? So there's a lot of different things that that I do, but if you wanted to use the the elevator pitch on it, I would say I see Juan shake the trees, and then I sort of rake the leaves and put them in piles. So he'll, <laughs> he'll stir things up, and then I'll try to put them in piles so people know how to work on them and dissect them and and uh, and do that. Because you know, when you have a leader like who's an entrepreneur like Juan, um, you really need to let him be himself and 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 it transform things the way his mind sees them. But he also needs people around to, to add some discipline to it to, and rigor to make sure that his dream becomes a reality. And I, that's what I try to do. That's a great description. Now, with all you've experienced and seen, what do you believe should be the agricultural industry's goal when it comes to the livestock sector? Well, that's a, that's a, a big topic, really. Um, I, w- I would say that the overall goal for livestock sector is to produce food efficiently, environmentally sustainable manner to feed the world, right? And I know we're going to be talking about feeding the world here in a little bit, but both crop and livestock sectors have an excellent track record in this area. It's not just it's not just livestock. In fact, in fact, I would tell you it's more crop than livestock, where they have done a terrific job of improving yields of, of crop and precision farming and all the technology that's been added, the crop sector is, is way ahead of the livestock sector in that regard. But yeah, feeding the world with the growth that's coming on is going to be the main thing for sure. And, you know, we're talking about growth. So with a prediction of 10 billion people to feed by 2050, what challenges do you foresee for the agricultural industry? And how do you think we can overcome these challenges to feed this growing population? Okay, this is a, this is an interesting topic, and um, I have some data on the top of my head. I can maybe we can talk about. Yeah. Well, first, I, I believe that all lives have equal value. Okay, everybody's life has an equal value, and you know, in order to live, we need to breathe clean air. We need to have access to fresh water. You need to have access to appropriate diet. You need to have shelter and access to proper hygiene and medical care. There's lots of human needs. I don't know if those are human rights or human responsibilities, but they're certainly all there. And when you travel the less developed world, like in Africa and India in particular, you'll see that not all lives are treated equally, especially if you live in a developed world country. And so we also know that this phenomena of urbanization is upon us, where in the near future, I think they're predicting by 2050 that 80% of the population of the Earth is going to reside in major cities. That's going to change things a lot. I'll use China. Did you know that there's, I believe, 16 cities in China that have over 10 million people? And the 10 million number, I know New York has between 8 to 10 million people. So there's 16 New Yorks in China. And New York cities, and, and I would challenge somebody to give me the 10 names of them, right? Uh, right. And then I would say that the size of the U.S. is about 3.8 million square miles. Well, the size of China is about 3.7 million square miles. They're very similar in size. So you've got two countries very similar in size geographically, and one country having 10 cities the size of New York City and the other just one, right? And so... The reason I say that is the, the population growth is a real thing that's happening. 
But to be more specific about it, Laura, it's really going to be in Africa. The three billion more people that are projected to be here by 2080 literally are all coming from Africa. And you might say, well, why, why is Africa continue to ignore uh, population control and, and using birth control and other things like that? That's not what's driving it. It's actually child mortality that's, that drives the population growth. What I, what I mean by that is if you're a, uh, a poor farmer in Africa and you know that you're going to lose three children between the ages of zero to five due to, to infectious diseases, you have seven kids because you know you're going to lose three, so you end up with four, and that's what you need to work on your village farm. As we see childhood mortality go down, then we see the birth rate go down. So it's an interesting fact. A lot of people think, well, people should just use birth control pills and, and they're you know not smart enough to figure all that out. It's really parents realizing that uh, they need labor on their farms to subsist and they have more children to compensate for that. So the challenges are, for the three billion people, what they eat in Africa is not what we eat here. So we're going to be fine in, kind of in the developed world, in Europe, and, and in, the, in the Americas, I would say. But in the less developed world, can we design a food system that is safe, that is efficient, that's nutritious, that's convenient, that will satisfy their needs? It's not just about providing more steak and milk and pork to Africa. It's actually understanding what those needs are for the three billion more people that are going to, going to be there. That is a very good explanation. And I think um, the stat of, you know, 10 billion people by 2050, like that's a stat that's thrown around a lot in our in our industry. And how are we going to face that? And I, I think that you're spot on by saying that people don't understand that that's coming from Africa. And I think that the way you just explained that was um, phenomenal. So thank you for that. Yeah, let's just use an example. In in uh, in India, they will use napier grass to feed cows, mm-hmm. and you've probably never even heard of that, right? And and so, can should we start our genetic programs in India and Africa to uh, adapt a lot of their their local feedstock that they use there and, and the and the type of environment it's it's hotter? So should we use different breeds of animals there to try to supply? food for those countries in the future. We don't we don't do that here because we think of the US dairy farmer perhaps too much. Right. Now, you know, like in North America as the population continues to grow generation by generation, people are becoming more removed from farming. How do you think this growing disconnect from the farmer to the to our like everyday consumer affects agriculture? Yeah, in a, in a very big way. You know, at, at the uh, turn of the last century, in 1900, if you look at the census, I think there was around 30 million jobs in the United States, and 10 million of those identified as ag jobs. Uh, so one-third, easy, maybe more mm-hmm. at the turn of the century. Today, it's about 1% of the job or less. In fact, I think I think the, in the 2027 or 2017 census, they took agriculture off as one of the categories because it was below 1%. And so when you go from that many people involved in food and now fewer, and largely due to technology. I mean, uh, when you look at the way that we plant and harvest crops and the way we grow livestock today, it's completely different than it was uh, 100 years ago. 
And uh, congratulations for that because we're making it more efficient and less of a carbon footprint and all that. Mm -hmm. But also we're getting more urbanized. So people that are, are living in apartments in downtown Chicago literally think that, that steak comes from Kroger. And they don't really understand the, the value chain way behind and what that means. And in fact, they may not want to know about it as much in the future. This, in veterinary medicine, this concept of the human-animal bond is a, is a big deal. And, you know, uh, just think about your own pets, your own dogs and cats, where, you know, 50 years ago they were kept outside on a leash or ran wild, and now you brought them in the house and they have a pet collar on them and they sleep in the bed and you feed them designer food. It's gone to a great degree where the human-animal bond has become very strong. And as people learn more about livestock and livestock systems, they may not want to hear too much about how cows are, are processed at the processing plant and how they turn into meat. It's not a So we don't have enough dynamic leaders that can go to the urban areas and, and talk to students about the great careers in ag, the great things that we've done to improve the safety of the food supplies, the human nutritional aspects today and in the future. Um, we, we, need, we need more people to do that. The other aspect of that is this advent of, of agritourism, and we could talk about that in a minute, I'm sure. Yeah, um, I think that that leads us right into what we want to talk about next, and that is what, like, how do you believe is the best way for the farmer to improve this disconnect? So when you say the farmer, I'm assuming you mean the commercial farmer, not, not ST in general. Well, what, what we've seen a little bit is this concept of agrotourism. I think Fair Oaks Farms in Indiana, if you're familiar with that, they're north of Indianapolis, about an hour and a half by car. And it's right off the interstate. And you can actually see a working dairy farm and a, and a working pig farm. And you they've actually set up glassed-in areas where you can walk. I don't want to say it's akin to walking through the reptile cage in a zoo, but you, you actually feel like you're inside the facility, but you can't go into it for biosecurity reasons. And also because it's a working facility, uh, there's people in there, you know, raking hay and feeding and processing baby pigs and doing all that kind of stuff. But I think it's given the general public a glimpse inside of today's modern livestock farms that they haven't had before. And I, I applaud that effort and I hope more farms are set up that do that because it does advance the case for, for agriculture, the future for the, the people you're talking about. Definitely. Um, and I think it's a great example on how, how other farmers, maybe not at the level of Fair Oaks, but I think that that's a great example that shows how other farmers can tell their story. Um, every farm has their own unique backstory. And I think a lot of times consumers connect really well with knowing the farmer and who's producing the food that they're eating. Yeah, that, yeah, but let me let me just throw one cautionary word out before someone just yeah. goes off and does that. Yeah. <laughs> here, here at ST, uh, we've set up an animal welfare program for both the the cow and the pig, mm -hmm. and in the cow in particular, there there wasn't uh, there's not a government mandated welfare program, so we have to design our own. So we designed our own program, and then we audited it with outside auditors. Not every company does that. And so be before you start inviting people into your premise, I would make sure that you're proud of the systems and, and 
things that you've put in place to make sure that when people see your livestock that, you know, they're in a welfare-friendly position. Definitely. Definitely. Thank you for that. I think that that's a great point. So along with this disconnect we are seeing, we have report after report coming out showing that consumers care about sustainable production of their food. Can you share how you believe STGen can assist farmers in doing their part to take care of the land that they are on and help them leave a smaller carbon footprint? So, you know, we're, we're doing some things internally at ST for ourselves, like planting more trees and putting solar power on some of our operations and moving to hybrid vehicles for our our staff that need vehicles to perform their work. We're doing those kind of things in which I think every farmer needs to continue to to look at and, and, um, and, and adopt. But the biggest thing we actually do by improving the genetics of the animal is to lower the carbon emissions. Ecofeeds are a really good example of that. And we do the same thing on the pig side because we select for feed efficiency there. If you select, if you can select for an animal that grows faster and has a bigger carcass whilst at the same time consuming less feed, then that's less crop that you need and less carbon footprint and all that. So we've been doing that for years at STI. I will tell you we've recently sort of supercharged the technology by adding genomic selection into that equation. And so our, our genetics team now can make faster progress. So I'm really excited to see how our genetic improvement program progresses and transforms uh, the, the nature of carbon in the future. And you recently spoke at the 21st Century Animal Health Symposium at the University of Illinois. Yeah where we have it quoted that you said, Thomas Edison didn't see the failures he experienced during the innovation of the light bulb as failures, but rather as the number of steps he had to do to make it work. Today, we're conditioned by this black and white thinking of success and failure, whereas the people that make things happen can understand failure is good because I've learned something from it. How do you think that type of thinking reflects on the technologies, programs, and genetics STGen is behind and provides to farmers? Yeah, so this is sort of a topic that's near and dear to my heart because I have personal experience with it, right? I had to apply to vet school three times before I got in. So did I, did I fail three times or did, I, did it just take me three steps to get in the fourth time, right? And so... Um, that, that was my first experience with failure, and I realized that it made me grow as a person, made me try to better understand what it is that I had to do to, to make it happen. So I think we all learn by failures, and we need to accept that that's part of the process, that it really helps make transformational discoveries possible. You know, at STGen, we're all about using novel technologies like biotech, bioelectronics, bioengineering, biostatistics, and you you soon find when you bring experts from these different areas into the room that advancement doesn't just follow a straight line. You know, one group succeeds, another fails, and then there's these unintended consequences that occur. But it's through that iterative process of, I'll call it failing faster. You know, I I try to coach people, don't be afraid to fail, just fail faster so you arrive at the conclusion. (laughs) When you do that, it it changes the way you think about a problem because then you think of it as solvable instead of, you know, we failed once, we're going to give up. 
so unexpected results happen all the time in science, and that's how some great discovery, discoveries have been made. And I'd like to believe that ST were very uh, tech-minded that way, and, and, and Juan allows us to experiment and fail because he, he knows the same thing. It's through those failures that we learn. And you were the past CEO of AccuFast, the swine division of STGen. Yeah. So very involved in swine genetics. And you are also um, have your hand in the bovine side of things as well now. How do you think genetics and technology can work together to create a more efficient and sustainable farm operation? So, yeah, I mean, I've been involved in swine genetics for literally 40 years off and on. And it's a fascinating area because really all you had to do was look at poultry genetics and copy their model, which is basically what we did in swine, and, and uh, develop the genetic programs. In cattle, it's been a, a different model of development, more, more of the show ring mentality, I'll call it, instead of the economic mentality. And that's starting to change right now. You're, you're seeing the, the, the dairy and beef producers start thinking more about how to monetize not only the milk, but also the the beef on dairy calf that's coming out as an example. And that's really going to change things a lot. So if you have genetics by itself, I, I want to say anybody can pick a good one if you want to think of it that way. But when you add technology to it, especially genomics technology, and you add our phenotypic data to it, it puts us with a very unique tool in a very unique position. And then you add the reproductive technologies on top of that with in vitro fertilization and follicular aspiration and embryo transfer, embryo cloning, sex sperm. You add all those things on top of genetics, then they can help exploit or expand the genetics in ways that people hadn't seen possible before. So putting the technology with the genetics is something that we think is a very powerful, powerful tool in our toolkit. And STGen is known for pushing the boundaries when it comes to livestock genetics and technology, and it's kind of what you all had just described. And this is largely due to STGen's great research and development team. What do you see as the next implementation of technology at the farm level that you believe will connect with the consumers, like those that we were just talking about, but that also keeps the farmer's business profitable and sustainable for the next generation. So this is, a, I think, an important topic and, and one that I spoke about at the Illinois conference to, to a great degree. Um, my vision for what's going to be happening at the, at the farm level and with livestock and what we could do from an R&D standpoint has a lot to do with robotics, computer vision, machine learning, artificial intelligence. You know, just to just envision, t today there's about 4 billion of the 8 billion people in the world that are on the internet today. That grew from literally zero 30 years ago to half the world's on the internet. And then if you look at that, there's around 30 billion internet of things devices. So I can sit here in Texas today and control the temperature in my house. I can look at my pet feeder. I could look at you know, different by ring.com. There's lots of devices that I can connect with and make changes in. You know, 30 years ago, we couldn't do that. So I, I think what you're going to see is, you, let's say you have a farm with, with pigs in it and you have computer vision, you have the com computers looking at the animals and it sees that they're all huddled together in a pile and, and you've trained the 
computer vision through machine learning that when the animals are huddled up in a pile that they're cold. And so does it send a text to the to the pig farmer and say your animals are cold, turn on the heat? Or does that actually just send a message to the heater and turn on the heat? So it bypasses the person through AI. And then once it sees the animals are spread out, then, then, then the heat goes down. So you're going to see a lot going on with uh, remote monitoring of livestock, interpreting what those signals mean, and, and how we can improve production. I, I found it really interesting with my swine background. Again, all the, the farm guys that I worked with, the guys that grew up on farms, they thought that the boar, boar was very smart and could go into a pen of females and detect which one was in heat or in estrus ready to breed. And I talked to Temple Grandin about that one day, and, and she said, no, that's not how it works. She said, the female tells you when she's in heat. And I said, now, how does that work? And so if you take a group of females and you keep the boar at one end of the barn and the females at the other, the ones that are in heat will run to the male. And so it was an example of, of people having a paradigm that the male was smart enough to figure out which female to breed. And reality is the female is the one that's, that's finding the male. So those are the kind of paradigms that I think computer vision and machine learning are going to teach us about animal behavior and what goes on in the barns. It's more than just behavior, though. They have microphones now that can measure the number of coughs per minute, so you can tell when there's more respiratory disease. If animals have diarrhea, they could pick up wet spots on the floor that computers can, and you get an idea of when an outbreak of a enteric disease is happening. So we're going to learn a lot, and because ST is in a position to having all this phenotypic data in a, in a great IT department, I think you're going to see IT become a, a really important factor in what we do here. Well, that is um, a lot to look forward to and um, just a great explanation again on what we could possibly see to come. Yep. Well, thank you, Greg, for joining us today and sharing all of your experience and knowledge with us. We truly appreciate it. Yes, you're very welcome. Thanks again. This was another episode of ST Talks. If you like what you heard, you can find more episodes on your favorite podcast platform by searching ST Talks or ST Genetics. And if you want to learn more about ST Genetics, visit our website at stgen.com or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or X. And from all of us at ST Genetics, we hope you have a great day. <laughs>